When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Bob Cowett, and I will be speaking today with Michael Pettis, Professor of Finance at Peking University's School of Management. Michael has authored four books. The most recent one, Trade Wars or Class Wars, is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a frequent guest on BBC, NPR, Bloomberg Radio and Podcast. He's written for the Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and a loose confederation of his former students is active in a variety of significant financial positions around the world and refer to themselves as the Pettis Group. A comprehensive list of his professional and scholarly accomplishments would probably take up this entire episode. Michael teaches a course on central banking in which part of the curriculum addresses the topic of financial repression. Uh, Financial repression was a common element of uh, finance and investment management from 1945 until about 1990. Then over 45 years of interest rates uh, declining, most financial repression has disappeared from financial markets. But now global debt is at an all-time high. Global debt to GDP ratio is about 352% uh, at the end of 2021. And just here in the US, government debt was about 125% of GDP, uh, actually higher than it was in 1945, the last high at, at the end of World War II. Now, Michael, your most recent book, Trade Wars or Class Wars, uh, you address global savings, investment, and imbalances, and the use of capital controls uh, to get things more closely aligned. How do you see that going on right now? Well, I think, you know, the whole issue of of global savings and balances is something that I think is relatively new, and it's not something that economists really speak a a great deal about, or at least they have a very uh, um, uh, robust model for thinking about it, because it's fairly new. The first uh, people that I know of who spoke about uh, savings and balances, by which I mean that economies were saving too much and had to figure out how to resolve this excess saving, was uh, way back in the 1890s, when people like John Hobson in England and Charles Arthur Arthur Conant in the United States were talking about the serious economic implications of excess savings. Among other things, both of them argued that imperialism was really driven, and Lenin later on picked up this argument, was really driven by the need to export excess savings. And the reason uh, Hobson told us there were excess savings is because of income inequality. When the rich retain a very, very large share of what is produced, uh, they tend to save most of their earnings. It tends to be workers in the middle class who consume most of their earnings. So as you shift income up the the sort of uh, uh, the scale, and as you increase income inequality, you have a problem of excess savings. now, this sort of disappeared in the, uh, in, in, in the early 20th century, largely because of the two world wars, but even in the 1930s, you know, when you read um, someone who I think was probably our most brilliant Federal Reserve Chairman, um, Mariner Eccles, he talks a lot about the problems of excess savings. 
But that quickly disappeared too with World War II, because one of the things world, uh, war does is that it destroys a great deal of infrastructure and manufacturing capacity, which needs to be rebuilt through investment. And it also destroys a great deal of wealth, so it reduces savings. So we had brief periods where, where excess savings were a problem, and then that was quickly resolved, unfortunately resolved through war, but it was resolved. And it wasn't until the 1960s, 1970s, when Europe and Japan were, were substantially rebuilt from the ravages of the two world wars. And we started to see once again, a problem of excess savings. And what I would argue is that it's not a coincidence that this is sort of the, the argument of my book, uh, Trade Wars or Class Wars, that when you saw this explosion of savings relative to the uh, uh, ability productively to absorb those savings in productive investment, is that you started to see a number of other things happen. You saw huge trade imbalances driven not by trade differentials or production differentials, but really driven by the flow of uh, the international flow of capital. And along with that, you, uh, you saw significant increases in income inequality and a worsening of, uh, or I should say, a worsening of income inequality and significant increases in debt. So one of the points that uh, my co-author, Matt Klein, and I try to make in our book is that we live in a world of excess savings. And as these excess savings slosh around the world, they can create enormous damage, not just to developing countries, where it's very clear the damage that they can create, but even to economies like the United States, which is forced to absorb all of this excess savings. And the damage that it causes to the US, as we show in, in, in our book, is that it causes Americans uh, to have to choose between either higher unemployment, uh, higher household debt, or a higher fiscal deficit. And for obvious political reasons, we've always chosen the latter two. But we argue that there is a connection between excess savings in countries like Germany and China and Japan and uh, rising household and fiscal deficits in, the, in countries like the United States and England, the absorbers of all of this excess capital. So, you know, that's really why we talk about capital control. So when, when, when people worry about deficits, their, their sort of go-to argument is we must impose tariffs to prevent these deficits from happening. But as, as we argue in the book, in a world in which imbalances are driven by savings imbalances, tariffs have no impact or very, very little impact on those imbalances. And you can see it in the data after the Trump administration placed substantial tariffs on Chinese goods, um, the US deficit with China contracted a bit before expanding again, but that was perfectly matched by an expansion of the US deficit with the rest of the world and an expansion of the, the Chinese surplus with the rest of the world. So basically we argue that, that these trade imbalances are a real problem. And there, you know, there's nothing new about that. Both John Maynard Keynes and Harry Dexter White in the Bretton Woods uh, negotiations recognize these very similar problems. Um, but the, the sources of the trade imbalances are on the capital side. So the best way to address them is through the capital side. And that means capital controls. Um, and I'll say I'll say one last thing, Bob, before I uh, before I turn it over to you. But um, again, when you go back to the Bretton Woods negotiations, uh, Harry Dexter White, who represented the United States, and John Maynard Keynes, who represented Great Britain, disagreed on many things. But one thing they both were in agreement on was that there is almost no benefit to the unfettered flow of capital. And both of them recognized and understood that a well-functioning trading system was probably one in which there were significant capital controls. So let me stop there and, um, and, and turn it over to you. Sure. From Bretton Woods uh, came a whole variety of elements of financial uh, repression. 
at the time, the world as it was back then, that was centered around the anchor of the US dollar and gold convertibility. So the central banks of the countries that had signed on at Bretton Woods uh, relinquished their right to trade gold independently. They could only trade with the US at a price of $35 an ounce. Uh, and that stabilized uh, uh, currency levels uh, and allowed things to start the healing process. But as you and I have often discussed, uh, there is something called the impossible trinity. There are only a couple of levers of control that a country has. Those three elements are um, floating foreign exchange rates, control of interest rates, and free flow of capital. A country can control any two of those three items at any time, but impossible to control all three. And even when you try and control even one of those, it starts to create inefficiencies which build up outside the system. And that uh, eventually Im implodes uh, the, uh, the controls that were left in place. So for, uh, for example, in Bretton Woods, uh, Bretton Woods worked fine. Uh, there were disagreements amongst the members, uh, but then as economies started to recover at different rates and had different needs, some of the countries that were involved uh, decided to game the system. Uh, France being right at the top of that list, uh, where de Gaulle eventually found that uh, he could buy gold from the United States at $35 an ounce. And there was also a, a free market uh, for gold outside of the, uh, the boundaries of the uh, Bretton Woods agreements. And he could sell gold at a higher price. So basically arbitraging the system and uh, eventually uh, uh, forcing uh, the dollar to drop gold convertibility. Uh, after that, uh, the various elements of the uh, uh, accords dropped away and finally uh, broke apart completely. I think in 1962, uh, the United States implemented the interest equalization tax, uh, which uh, made it virtually impossible for US citizens and US institutions to invest in stocks and bonds abroad to uh, limit the, uh, the outflow of dollars. And capital controls work at a time and place or foreign exchange controls can work at a time and a place. They generally can't work forever because the conditions in which they were implemented will change over time. And without explicit exit strategies, uh, you run into um, uh, ugly unwinds of some of the controls that have been put in place. Uh, so how would you address that? Well, I think, you know, uh, there's no question that as you implement controls, the market tends to work around those controls, but that works in, you know, in, in, in every possible combination. So for example, if you have the free flow of capital, uh, you know, one of the big problems in, um, in, in the sort of the pre-1971 Bretton Woods period was that capital was flowing relatively easily, particularly from the US abroad. Um, but because currencies had all pegged to the dollar and they were using that peg as a way of growing more rapidly, basically by undervaluing their currency, um, I would argue that that wasn't a problem of, um, of, of uh, uh, capital controls. I would argue that that was a problem of, of, of you know, good old-fashioned mercantilism. It was an attempt to grow more quickly by gaining a bigger share of global growth uh, through an undervalued currency. So I think if you want to address that, you have to address it through the currency. Um, but what's really interesting is that the U.S. eliminated all capital controls basically in the early 1980s. And if you look at the global imbalances, that's really when they began to surge. So I think the cost of eliminating those capital controls 
ended up being much greater than whatever the costs of those capital controls were. Um, the, the, the global economy at the time was functioning reasonably well. Now, you know, one of the things that's very interesting to me is that until the 1970s, if you had asked most development economists, which was the good part of the developing world and which was the bad part of the developing world, most of them would have agreed that Latin America was the good part. It was growing extraordinarily quickly. Uh, Brazil, I think, I'm pretty sure, was the first country ever to be referred to as an economic miracle, and it grew, you know, seven to eight percent for 20, 30 years. And much of Latin America was growing very, very quickly. Uh, Asia was in a very different position. Um, that was a time when East Asian economies seemed almost incapable of growing. And then something seemed to happen in the 70s and 80s where we saw a major shift. And after that, it's become commonplace among development economists to agree that the Latin American model, whatever it is, is wrong, and the East Asian model, whatever it is, is correct. And I wonder if that doesn't have something to do with the extent of capital flows, because the Latin American economies were very good um, uh, students of, of economics in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And they basically allowed massive capital inflows. And you'll remember when we saw the surge in oil prices in the early 70s, and then several, several more increases throughout the 70s, one of the big problems that the global financial system had to resolve was that the surplus of the oil exporting countries exploded and those were those had to be recycled and they were recycled into countries uh, the so-called LDC countries most of which were Latin American with a couple of exceptions there was the Philippines and some of the East Asian countries too and you saw massive inflows into those countries which ended up, I think today we all agree, undermining their growth models and leading to the debt crisis that began in, uh, in 1982. On the other hand, the East Asian countries had very different set of policies. They all had capital controls, unlike Latin America. They restricted the amount of capital that came into those countries. In fact, in many cases, in most cases, uh, they were actually net exporters of capital as they attempted to keep their currencies very low and to keep the global price of their labor very cheap. And they grew very, very rapidly. But the problem with that growth has been that that's been, you know, we call it export-led growth and all of these countries run very, very large trade surpluses. And, you know, there, there are many economists who believe that that's how you get rich, by running large trade surpluses. But what we forget is that that's a really weird model because that's really not how we used to think developing countries became richer. Certainly when you look at developing countries in the 19th century, including the United States, they were never exporters of capital. They were always importers of capital because the argument there was that as, uh, as developing countries, they had very high investment needs very low savings rates, and so they benefited by importing capital. So we ended up with a very, very different model after the 1980s, and we saw these huge increases in trade imbalances. The trade imbalances after the 1980s make trade imbalances before the 1980s almost negligible. Um, and why does that matter? It matters because, as we explain in our book, the reason countries run trade surpluses, large persistent surpluses, and you know, under classical economic theory, that wasn't supposed to happen. If you have a large surplus that causes monetary and perhaps fiscal adjustments, which eliminate the surpluses. So trade over the, over the medium term tends to be roughly balanced, but that didn't happen. Uh, Japan ran permanent surpluses for four or five decades Germany has run surpluses, except in the decades of the 90s. It's run surpluses for, again, four, five, six decades. China's been running surpluses since 1993. And this isn't supposed to happen. So why don't you get adjustments in these countries? 
And uh, what we argue in our book is that countries run surpluses by definition because they have high savings rates. And we often say countries that have high savings rates are countries in which people work very hard and they're very thrifty. And of course, that turns out to be total nonsense. It's not that they don't work very hard, but you know, I've lived in lots of countries around the world. I've never lived in one in which people didn't work very hard. And it has nothing to do with thrift. All those high savings countries, whether it's Germany or Japan or China or South Korea or the Netherlands, in every case, you'll notice that workers get a lower share of what they produce than among their trade partners. Um, you know, the most notorious case is Germany, because everyone says Germany has high wages. Yes, but Germany has higher productivity. So if you look at wages as a share of productivity in Germany, it's lower than in almost any other European country. And the countries in which it's not lower tend to be countries like the Netherlands, which also have permanent surpluses. Um, so what we argue in our book is the way you run surpluses is by doing exactly what John Hobson and Charles Arthur Conant in, in, the, in the 1890s said you shouldn't do, and that is to underpay your workers and your middle class relative to what they produce. Now, why do you do that? You do that because by lowering your unit labor costs, you become internationally competitive. And as you become internationally competitive, you can grow more quickly by using your demand and a portion of foreign demand to generate growth. Um, the problem, and, and again, Keynes talked about this very specifically in the Bretton Woods Agreement. The problem is that the way you're generating growth is by reducing your contribution to global demand. So countries like, like Germany and, and, and Japan and China, their demand is less than their production because they have policies in place that reduce domestic demand in China we've known about this uh, since at least 2007. And it's been very, very hard to resolve for, for reasons we can, we can discuss some other time. But the point is that by implementing these policies, you reduce your contribution to global demand, but you benefit by taking a bigger share of the global demand that's left. So what Keynes worried about was these sort of policies are bad for global growth, even as they are good for the countries that implemented them. And he argued in the 1930s, we saw the consequences of that, the, the famous beggar thy neighbor policies. Each country took steps to exploit the demand of its trading partners. And as everyone did that, global demand contracted further and further and further and the whole world uh, uh, got into trouble. Mercantilism only works if you're the only one doing it. But unfortunately, in a mercantilist global system, everybody ends up doing it. Now, what does this have to do with capital controls? Well, if countries have deficient domestic demand, which is another way of saying if they have excess savings, they must export those savings. And it's by exporting those savings that they can avoid resolving the demand deficiency at home. Let's assume that Germany was a closed economy on the capital account. It couldn't export savings. Well, if it couldn't export savings, then savings could never exceed investment. And, and, and German policies that push up savings by reducing uh, uh, consumption, basically by reducing uh, uh, workers' wages, which is what happened after 2003-2004, would have to resolve it domestically. And the only way you can resolve it domestically is by increasing government investment or by forcing wages back up again, or else it gets resolved for you by a collapse in, in GDP growth, right? But if you can export those excess savings, you don't face that problem. So you don't have to resolve your domestic demand deficiencies. That's why in the book we argued that the most effective way the US had, the US and other countries that absorb excess savings, which are not by coincidence all the Anglophone economies because of the similarities of their financial markets and their governance, 
if those countries were to make it more difficult for foreigners to dump excess savings in their economies, then those countries like Germany, China, they would be forced to resolve their demand deficiencies at home, and they could no longer resolve them by exporting those deficiencies to, say, the U.S., which then had to absorb, then had to absorb those deficiencies in the form of a higher household debt or higher fiscal debt. So what we argue is the only way you can really solve these huge imbalances, which have been getting worse decade after decade after decade, is by imposing capital controls. Now, are there costs to capital controls? Yes, of course they are. Um, you know, I don't think there's anything in economics that is cost-free, but the reason we support them is because the costs of not imposing them, we would argue, are much, much greater. Uh, there's uh, 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 large trade deficits in the economies that absorb excess savings, um, rising household and fiscal debt as an alternative to rising unemployment and worsening income inequality. So that's a really long answer. I apologize, uh, Bob, but uh, let me stop there. No, that that's in terms of our usual conversations, that's just sort of the tip of the iceberg. But uh, when you talk about something like that and specifically the United States, uh, we did have that situation for a period of time, uh, which led to uh, the dollar becoming uh, very overvalued to the point that uh, the uh, developed nations of the world had to get together and meet at something called the Plaza Accord in New York in 1985 to agree to intervene to uh, uh, reduce the value of the dollar. Uh, to drive the dollar down because the dollar was getting so expensive, uh, nobody could afford anything in in the uh, in the U.S. Uh, I remember very well uh, the firm uh, that I was at at the time, which no longer exists. Uh, we were sort of dominant in, in a lot of the global uh, fixed income markets, and we'd hired a team of uh, salespeople uh, in uh, in Europe. And uh, uh, they had been resident in Germany. And uh, after a couple of months, I found out that these guys had been running a side business where the value of the dollar had gotten so high against the Deutschmark that they were able to buy uh, cars in Germany, usually uh, relatively late model Mercedes. Uh, retrofit them to meet U.S. pollution standards, and uh, all get all in costs to uh, to some of the uh, uh, their uh, colleagues uh, uh, at our firm in the the U.S. at about half the price of a of a, a comparable Mercedes. Uh, so they became sort of part-time bond salesmen and full-time uh, car dealers. And I'm sure there was much more of that going on. And uh, eventually the, uh, the uh, interventions had some effect, but when you talk about things like that today, the, uh, the capital control by all of the major central banks in the world is dwarfed by some of the pools of capital in private hands that would immediately uh, mount an attack on something like that. Uh, we saw that happen to a, a, a limited, not a limited, to a pretty aggressive degree uh, back in the, uh, the first march up uh, to the euro, where the European countries decided to have a gradual transition from individual currencies uh, and volatile exchange rates between uh, local trading partners uh, to, uh, to harmonize the, uh, the values of their currencies. Uh, that eventually evolved into something called the ERM, the European Exchange Rate Mechanism, where the major currencies agreed to keep their currencies uh, within a band of plus or minus two and a quarter percent uh, versus each one of the other trading partners. I think there were 12, 12 countries involved at the time. And then some of the uh, uh, smaller economies had bands as wide. I think there are one or two that had bands as wide as six uh, percent up or down. Uh, and then uh, uh, 
that came under uh, uh, quite a bit of, of, of pressure. There was something uh, called short-term world income funds or short-term short world income uh, strategies that were picked up. That was uh, 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 an arbitrage based on the uh, what's referred to as the carry trade in foreign exchange, where you borrow money in the lowest interest rate country and lend it to the highest interest rate country. And as long as those uh, uh, currency pairs remain vaguely in line, you can book a pretty substantial uh, uh, profit on those. Uh, then those were packaged into funds that were leveraging things 10 or 20 times, and uh, it, it developed enormous pressure. Uh, the UK finally joined, I think, in 1990 or 1991, and, this, and sterling was so massively overvalued at the, uh, the rate at which they entered the ERM uh, that they were eventually forced out uh, in 1992 uh, because uh, Germany, which was the peg for the European rates, basically uh, the Bundesbank was the uh, uh, the entity sent, uh, setting the policy for all of the ERM. Uh, East Germany and West Germany had finally re reunified, and they had the huge political question that you had two different currencies: the Deutschmark for West Germany and the Erstmark. Uh, in East Germany, and uh, at what level were they going to be convertible in for one another? And Germany finally decided to bite the bullet and they adopted something called Ein für Ein, uh, one for one. One East Mark was worth one Deutschmark, and that increased the money supply in Germany overnight and forced Germany to raise interest rates to, I think, eight and three quarters or nine percent which put tremendous upward pressure on all of the other currencies that were associated with the, uh, the ERM. Uh, and uh, eventually, uh, I think in uh, probably the fall of 1992, uh, George Soros mounted a huge attack on Sterling for which he's famous and still reviled today in London, uh, forcing Sterling to devalue and forced uh, the other countries to gradually drop out of the ERM and causing a financial crisis in many of those countries. So when things like that have actually happened because of the linear extrapolation of ideas that work might work well in specific situations for a specific amount of time, very much time and place uh, effective, uh, again, it's hard to, to see how this can be implemented on an ongoing fashion uh, without a very tangible expression of recognition that these things don't last forever, that we're going to constantly have to review them uh, and have metrics against which they can be measured. Uh, is, it, is that a possibility to be built in so a country can look at its uh, 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 current account situation, can look at its predict productivity levels, uh, and uh, there be some agreement that once these levels are reached, it's okay to go back to more free flow of all three elements? Well, um, you know, I think that part of, uh, of, of the cases that you're bringing up are not really examples of where uh, um, capital controls failed. On the contrary, in both of those cases, there were no capital controls, which is probably why they failed. You know, the case in England was that um, they wanted, well, they had no choice. There had to be free capital uh, flows because there were, there were, they were not allowed to implement capital controls within Europe. Uh, none of the members of the SNAKE or EMU were able to limit capital inflows or outflows. And they wanted to manage domestic monetary policy to fit the needs of the English economy. And they wanted to fix the currency. And what the impossible trinity tells us is that there's no way you can do all three. If you have free capital flows, you can't manage the domestic money supply and also manage the value of the currency. And that's what happened in England. They tried to manage both of those conditions 
with free capital flows. Had there been restrictions on capital, they probably wouldn't have been under, those, uh, under that position at all. So what I would argue is that those, those are really examples of what happens in an economy in which there are no, um, uh, 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 which there are no controls at all on the ability of capital to move back and forth. If you look at the Plaza Accords, um, they're really interesting because what people often forget is that the Plaza Accords uh, weren't about the yen, they were, as you know, about a whole bunch of currencies. And the two currencies that were forced to appreciate the most were the Japanese yen and the, uh, and the German Deutschmark. They both appreciated by the same amount. What's interesting is what happened next. In the case of Germany, the, um, the German trade surplus started to come down quite dramatically, more or less as we would have expected with an appreciation of the currency. Because remember, when your currency goes up, the way that works, you know, people always say it makes, it makes uh, uh, imports cheaper and exports more, more expensive. That's not really how it works. When the currency appreciates, what ends up happening is that you're transferring income from net exporters to net importers. And the net importers are the household sector, all households except subsistence farmers maybe are net importers. And the manufacturing sector is the net exporting sector. So by appreciating the currency, you transferred income from the manufacturing sector to the household sector, which is a way of increasing the household share of what they produce at the expense of the manufacturing sector. And as you increase the household share, you increase the consumption share, which is the obverse of reducing the saving share. So the imbalance between savings and investment in Germany went down substantially. Why didn't it happen in Japan? Well, it didn't happen in Japan because the Japanese government, it happened for a year, there was a contraction in the Japanese trade surplus, and then it immediately started expanding and became bigger than ever. And, and the reason there, I think most economists would agree, is because unlike Germany, Japan responded to the Plaza Accords by sharply reducing interest rates and forcing the banks through window guidance to expand credit. Now, why does that matter? Because when you lower interest rates, you're basically transferring income from net savers who are households who saved, who saved in the banking system to net borrowers who in the case of Japan were, were, were businesses. So notice what happens. The impact of the, of the appreciation of the yen was to transfer income from uh, 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 manufacturers to households. And the impact of the reduction of interest rates and the expansion of credit was to transfer income back from households to manufacturers and to investors. And they did that to such an extent that you actually saw an expansion in the Japanese current account surplus, which remember means an expansion in the gap between savings and investment by, by definition. So if the US had really wanted to resolve the trade imbalance with Japan, they would have been much more effective back then and much more effective with China under the Trump administration had they imposed taxes. Now you're right that imposing capital controls creates distortions that the market then tries to work around. But one of the things I think, uh, one of the, uh, the proposals that I like is a proposal that was submitted, uh, I think three years ago to the Congress. It wasn't passed, but it's being resubmitted this year. And I think eventually something like it will pass. And, and the way the proposal works is the, the Fed uh, is given the obligation to impose a variable income tax on all inflows into the United States. And it can keep raising that income, that tax on inflows until over a five-year period, total inflows are broadly equal to total outflows, which as you know, by definition, means that the current account uh, balance will be roughly zero. And why is this a good measure? A, because it's very flexible. It moves up, up and down to fit uh, uh, economic conditions. It can be abused and it will be abused. 
um, but it's fairly flexible. And B, because it's very discriminatory. You know, I don't need to tell you the way bond math works. If I charge you, say, a quarter percent on all money you bring into the United States, um, if you are bringing in money because you want to build a factory in Tennessee, you know, over the next 20 years, produce cars or whatever and sell them, that quarter percent tax will have almost no impact on your return on investment. Um, it'll be about one hundredth of a percent reduction in your return on investment. However, if you're just bringing in short-term money to buy short-term T-bills or whatever, then that quarter percent tax can have a, a really punitive effect. So the effect of the tax is basically uh, it leaves long-term inflows unaffected and it severely penalizes short-term inflows. Now, why does that matter? Because if it becomes too expensive to bring short-term capital into the United States, it would have been very difficult for Japan in the 1980s to continue accumulating huge amount of treasuries, US treasuries. It would have been very difficult for Japan to invest or to put money in the, in the US unless that were invested in real, uh, real productive capacity, real investment. Um, it would have been too expensive to buy treasury bonds. Um, and as a result, Japan would not have been able to export the bulk of its excess savings to the United States. Now, remember how the, the balance of payments work. If foreigners export $100 into the US, the US must run a current account deficit of $100. There's no choice, right? The current account and the capital account are simply the obverse signs of the same coin. Now, how does the US run a $100 deficit? Well, it could be good or it could be bad. In the 19th century, remember, when US had high investment needs and low savings, all of that British and Dutch money that came into the United States allowed American investment to be much higher than it otherwise would have been. That's a good thing. Um, but in the last 40, 50 years, there's been no savings constraint on investment. Interest rates have been very low. American companies sit on huge piles of cash and they're not investing that cash. For American businesses, investing means buying shares in another company. But of course, that's not real investing. That kind of investing doesn't cause growth. The investment that causes growth is investing in, in, you know, in logistics and manufacturing uh, capacity and stuff like that, real investment. Um, but because there's no savings constraint, uh, US companies are not failing to invest because the cost of capital is so high. On the contrary, the cost of capital is so low, they have huge pools of uh, huge hordes of cash sitting on their balance sheet. So when $100 enters the United States, that isn't used to increase investment. Any investment American companies want to do, they would have already been able to do because there was more than enough savings to cover that investment. But if it doesn't increase investment, it must reduce savings, right? That's the way the balance of payments work. And that's the part that, that seems counterintuitive to many people and that a lot of economists don't understand, but it follows automatically from the balance of payments. If investment doesn't go up, then savings must go down. Otherwise, you cannot absorb foreign savings. And uh, again, I, I won't go into the details. I explain this in the book, but the way savings go down is because the inflow of capital into the US causes changes in the financial system and in asset prices, et cetera, that cause either household debt to go up or that cause of the fiscal deficit to go up or would cause unemployment to go up, but usually we don't allow that. So it's debt that goes up, but that's the key point. If you have restrictions on the ability of foreigners to dump excess savings in, in, in speculative investments, in real estate, um, in anything except real productive investment, uh, then the US benefits from those parts of inflows that lead to more investment and rejects the parts that don't. And automatically you get an adjustment in the trade account. US, uh, either US 
uh, imports go down or US exports go up. And so that's, I would argue that the benefits of these capital controls are enormous. And the costs I think are quite limited. It's true people will organize ways of getting around them just as they did in the 1950s and 1960s. But if you look at the numbers, they're really tiny. And the impact on the trade accounts of the world was really, really minor. In fact, the, uh, you, know, you can argue that the whole Bretton Woods system was designed never to allow what happened in the 1920s and 30s to happen again. And that was a period, remember, when you saw massive capital flows from the US to Germany, from Germany to England, these huge flows that destabilized, it created bubbles in the 20s and created contracting GDP in the 1930s. And I would argue that uh, that's why Bretton Woods came with all sorts of capital controls, which we decided perhaps for ideological reasons to give up in the 1970s and 1980s. And we've been living with the consequences uh, um, uh, ever since. So Michael, in the world that we inhabit today, uh, especially with the level of debt that we're looking at uh, here in the US and globally, uh, some of the elements that would be necessary to implement capital controls uh, are probably gonna have an adverse effect on that situation. So uh, until recently, uh, we've been dealing with it here uh, by having uh, negative real interest rates. Uh, that uh, the short-term uh, inflation numbers uh, still are showing that that's negative on paper. We're probably getting closer to, uh, to a break-even level on a longer term. But again, uh, the uh, control on capital coming into the United States would seem to be a limiting factor on uh, the ability to uh, uh, control those uh, uh, those dimensions. Uh, and that would be in a world that is a, sort of an imaginary world, a sort of a, a, a vacuum where there is no uh, uh, political frictionality. So uh, again, given the world that we're in today where it's, it, it's difficult for even people within the same political party to agree on anything. And uh, if you just, just take the, the, the idea of capital controls, being presented in Washington, and I know you've been a part of, of some of these conversations already. Uh, is there anything there that uh, looks even remotely doable in the world today? Yeah, you know, the problem, the problem is that, uh, you know, there, there's no free lunch. Nothing comes without a cost. Now, um, because the US has played this role, has decided to play this role, where it absorbs all of the uh, domestic demand deficiencies of other countries, um, that's created certain benefits for the US. For example, it's made the dollar the dominant global currency for trade and for reserve purposes, which has been wonderful for the American banking system. Um, it's been wonderful for the American defense and foreign affairs establishment, as we're seeing with Russia. When you control the global currency, you control quite a lot. It gives you quite a lot of geopolitical power. Um, so there are certainly benefits to the US of this system. But the point that I wanna make and that, that I made in the book and that I wanna make here is that those benefits aren't free. You know, you hear China constantly talking about uh, the renminbi is going to become a major reserve currency like the U.S., a major trade currency like the U.S., and it's a joke. It's not. It's tiny. And in fact, if you adjust the use of the renminbi uh, 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 by the share of GDP, the renminbi is among the top 20 currencies. Only the Russian ruble is less important than the renminbi. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I would argue for China, it's been a really good thing because they like the idea of having a dominant reserve currency because it gives you all sorts of geopolitical power, but they refuse to take the necessary steps of doing so 
because it's economically so costly. They say they want to have a dominant reserve currency, but it's you know the military people and the politicos that say that. When you talk to the people who understand finance and monetary policy, the central bank people like that, they're very skeptical, although they can't, you know, they can't be uh, too obviously skeptical because that'll uh, infuriate a lot of uh, politicians, but they all understand that the requirements for having the renminbi become a major reserve currency has a huge economic cost as it does in the US. So in the case of the US, yes, everyone uses the dollar. And, and what does that mean? That means among other things, if you have excess savings, where do you want them? You don't want them in Russia or China because they could get confiscated. You don't want them in Mexico or the Philippines or Zaire because those economies are too risky. So where do you want them? Well, you want them in a place where you have very deep liquid financial markets so that you get the benefits of liquidity and flexibility and in a place with very strong corporate governance. And so that ends up being the so-called Anglophone economies, all of whom tend to run deficits. And that comes at a cost. You'll notice in all the Anglophone economies, you've got bubbles, you've got soaring debt, uh, you've got permanent trade deficits, and you've got very high and rising income inequality. So the point that I wanna make is not that it's a slam dunk, the US should immediately impose capital controls because that will be ferociously opposed by certain constituencies, Wall Street, uh, owners of movable capital, the defense establishment, the foreign affairs establishment. But by imposing capital controls and eliminating that, that, that role of the dollar as the super currency, it would benefit farmers, it would benefit uh, workers, it would benefit small producers. So my argument, is that we lose in geopolitical power and we gain in economic power. And because I believe the real power of the US has always been its economy, I would argue over the long term, we don't even lose in geopolitical power. But that's the problem. If you do what I'm recommending, it would be much better for the economy. But if we want to impose sanctions on Russia, it wouldn't work because they wouldn't matter that much, right? For those sanctions to matter, you need the world to be dominated by the American financial system. But there's a huge cost to that domination. And the reason no, no country will ever challenge the dollar, no currency will ever challenge the dollar is because nobody really wants to. When China in, in, in 2009, 2010 started buying huge amounts of yen, you would have thought, the yen would, the Japanese would be delighted. Our, our currency is becoming as important as the dollar. The Chinese are selling dollars and buying yen. But that's not what Japan said. Japan said, you have to stop doing that. If you don't allow us to buy your government bonds, you have to stop buying our government bonds. And the Chinese said, there's no way we're going to allow you to buy our government bonds. And both of them understood it. If the, if, if the Chinese kept buying yen, that would have forced contraction in the Japanese export, uh, export sectors, which are so important for Japan. And that would have been very difficult for Japan in the short term in terms of economic growth. In the long term, they would have benefited probably uh, because the export sector is too dominant. Uh, but certainly they didn't want it. The Chinese don't want it. The Germans don't want it. Everyone says that the US has an exorbitant privilege through the dollar and yet, whenever you offer that privilege to anybody else, they all turn it down. The only countries that accept the privilege are, again, the Anglophone economies that have very similar governance structures, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, the Anglophone economies are all suffering from soaring debt, real estate bubbles, stock market bubbles, uh, rising income inequality, and, and, and large and permanent trade deficits. So the point that I would make is that there are definitely costs of giving up uh, you know, of imposing capital controls. But I think those costs tend to be more geopolitical or if they're economic, they're costs that hurt Wall Street and uh, owners of movable capital. But there are economic benefits to the bottom half of the American economy and to American producers. Um, you know, if the dollar were weaker, it would be much easier for American manufacturers to compete 
uh, in the rest of the world. Let me throw out one last thing. There was a study done. I, I, I will look for it so I can give you the citation. But basically what they showed is that if you look at the countries that run persistent trade surpluses and countries that run persistent trade deficits, you'll see that the surplus countries, their share of global manufacturing is expanding and the deficit countries, their share is contracting. We keep hearing that manufacturing is contracting in the US because that's a natural thing. No, it's a natural thing in the deficit countries. But if you go to Germany, it's not, it's expanding. Um, and I would argue that that has to do with the structure of global trade and the ability of countries like Germany to use the US to resolve their domestic demand deficiencies. So uh, yes, there are big costs, um, but I would argue that this is really political. Certain sectors benefit and certain sectors pay the, the price. And, and, and I would argue that, um, you know, that we would be better off reversing that process. I know you don't have a, a great love for Wall Street either, even though we've both been in Wall Street for, for our entire careers. Um, but you know, I think that's the biggest opposition to this argument. Uh, yeah, and unfortunately right now, uh, the guys sitting in the corner offices in, uh, in Wall Street for the most part uh, are guys who've uh, lived their careers in a period uh, of, of falling interest rates and are right. being brought into harsh contact with, uh, uh, with reality. But I mean, that could probably be another 10 episodes just uh, uh, recalling uh, some of uh, uh, our personal experiences on, on that count. But uh, just to end, wrap things up here, because I, I think we're probably almost running out of time. This is one of these apropos of, of absolutely nothing. Uh, when you mention countries uh, not wanting to, to, to uh, uh, be even close to a global currency. Uh, I remember uh, when interest rates first started coming down in the United States, you had savers who are accustomed to getting CDs uh, uh, in, in the, uh, the high teens, maybe as high as 20% uh, on short-term deposits. And it was, uh, it was great to be uh, uh, a retiree uh, uh, living on savings and having uh, uh, huge income from that. Then as interest rates started to come down, there was a, a crisis there and the demand for high yielding short-term assets was, uh, uh, went global in a hurry. So uh, Australia, uh, which had a language uh, very, very similar to English as it's spoken in the United States, uh, and they had a currency called the Australian dollar, uh, also had interest rates on things like their treasury bills that were in their high teens, low 20s at the time. And uh, some enterprising entrepreneurs put together funds uh, to invest in uh, short-term Australian dollar assets. And this put huge uh, pressure on the Australian dollar as people invested in these uh, funds. Uh, the funds were converted from US dollars buying Australian dollars. Australian dollars uh, eventually started to, uh, to rise in value. And then the ultimate uh, event occurred. Uh, a movie came out that became a big hit movie, uh, Crocodile Dundee. And the guy spoke English. I mean, he looked like a, an upstanding guy who was gonna pay his taxes and he wasn't gonna default on his debt. Very honorable guy. And the value of the Australian dollar got to parity with the US dollar. Uh, a value of the Australian dollar that was so high, uh, they couldn't sell any of their things that they were exporting. Uh, so they had to step on the brakes real hard time there uh, to prevent inflows of, uh, of foreign capital into the Australian markets. Uh, uh, to gain the high interest rates uh, that were uh, that were available, and uh, the same phenomena then uh, occurred later on in the, the late '90s uh, in uh, in Asia, 
as Asian currencies peg themselves uh, to a stable value or low volatility versus uh, uh, the dollar. And again, a huge inflow. Uh, but then when it came time to pay these things back, uh, they didn't have the source of dollar revenue to uh, to repay them, led to another crisis. So uh, it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, very often gets ugly on the uh, uh, unwind. Uh, and uh, I think that a lot of your ideas are going to become uh, much more uh, mainstream. We've already seen a couple of stories being floated uh, about doing something about the strength of the U.S. dollar and convening uh, another uh, uh, plaza accord of some kind. Uh, and again, in my experience, and again, this is something for a completely different discussion, the inefficiencies that are generated uh, from the from the frictionalities of the uh, uh, uncoordinated uh, uh, interventions and repressions open up enormous opportunities. And uh, you don't have to be able to predict these things. You just have to be able to recognize them as an investor when they're going on uh, to, to, to see the tremendous opportunities that will be opened up as we stumble along uh, through a variety of different experiments uh, that I'm sure we're going to see in coming years. So Michael, thank you very, very, very much. And uh, uh, we will continue this conversation uh, for many years, I'm sure. Oh, thanks a lot, Bob. It's always great to talk to you. And, and yes, we, I'm sure we will continue it many more times.